0: Okay, so since we've had so many people kind of in and out last week, this week, yada yada, uh, I decided just to do the entire New England colonies in the 17th century on one podcast. So, Carson, buckle in. Don't take a nap on me. All right, so let's start off with the Protestant Reformation. Now, because of the Protestant Reformation, you get this eventual rise in Puritanism. So, 1517, you've got Martin Luther. He's going to start his break from the Catholic Church, and this is going to signal the birth of Protestantism, You know, which is basically protest, Protestant Reformation, protest, and reform. That's all there is to it. So Luther is going to declare that the Bible alone was the source of God's word, that faith alone would determine salvation, and he's going to denounce the authority of the Pope, which obviously is going to upset the Pope because, you know, he liked his authority. Uh, The Reformation is eventually going to come to dominate European politics well into the next century. Then we get John Calvin, or Jean Calvin. Uh, He's going to elaborate on the ideas that Luther had put out. and He's going to found Calvinism, which if you ask me is a little bit uh, narcissistic, but here we go. He is going to put these ideas into a, a book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. He's going to write this in 1536. His insights were that God was all powerful and all good, and that humans, due to the original sin, were weak and wicked. Now, Calvinists also believe in predestination, and that meant that God was all knowing and knew beforehand who was going to go to heaven or hell. And those who were the elect were chosen by God to have eternal salvation. Uh, he also said that the the good works, such as you know, following like the sacraments, sacraments, sorry, the sacraments. Uh, like communion and the transubstantiation of the host, all that. If you followed the these uh, sacraments of the Catholic Church, it did not determine whether or not you had salvation. Now, regardless of if you were going to be chosen one way or another, you still couldn't act immoral because technically you didn't know which way you know that would fall. You were supposed to have a conversion experience, and this would be this intense, like identifiable, personal experience with God that would be your son that God had chosen you. And once you had this conversion experience, you were supposed to be a visible saint. So, meaning after your conversion, you were expected to lead these sanctified lives as a, uh, as a model for your community. Now, we went from the Protestant Reformation to the English Reformation, you know, but it all started with the Protestant Reformation. So, you have the Church of England and the Puritans. Now, King Henry VIII is going to break ties with the Roman Catholic Church in the 1530s. He's going to become the head of the newly formed Church of England, also known as the Anglican Church, through the Act of Supremacy. Basically, he wanted to get divorced. The Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor said no and so he said, well, I'm going to do it anyway, so he broke from the church and made himself the head of the church and the state. Now, you end up with Puritans from this Church of England or this Anglican Church, also known as a as a uh, Episcopal Church. Now, the Puritans were Protestants that were seeking to reform the Anglican Church. They wanted to remove the Catholic elements and exclude people who were not committed. Now, if you want to purified even further you have the separatists, and this is going to be an extreme group of puritans who wanted to break from the anglican church altogether these people are later going to be called the pilgrims now james I, who was the king you know after henry and mary and elizabeth because you know elizabeth died without an heir anyway he's going to be concerned that separatists are going to challenge his role as the leader of the church act of supremacy again And he's going to threaten to force them out of England. So this is going to lead us to the Plymouth Colony and these pilgrims. So the pilgrims, which is this first wave of the separatists, are going to leave Britain for Holland for freedom to practice Calvinism. They're going to be led by Reverend John Robinson. Later, they're going to, they're going to become unhappy by the Dutchification of their children, you know, having to switch the adult, into Dutch culture, Dutch language. So they're going to seek an opportunity to practice a religion as Englishmen without any sort of interference. So they're going to secure rights with the Virginia Company to settle within its jurisdiction in Virginia. Now, the Pilgrims are going to agree to work for seven years in return for the support of the Joint Stock Company, which was comprised of non-separatist investors. And these profits between the settlers and the investors were supposed to be shared after those seven years. So, enter the Mayflower. The Mayflower is going to land off the New England coast in 1620 with 102 people. So, that's fewer Fewer than half of these people are going to be separatists. Now, some, some historians will suggest that uh, these pilgrims hijack the ship and they're going to con- gain the consent of the non-separatists or the, the strangers, as they were called, by the separatists by issuing the Mayflower Compact, but there's, there's no hard evidence to, to kind of veer that way. Uh, they're eventually going to choose Plymouth Bay, as a settlement site, uh, Plymouth had been a indigenous community that had been ravaged by a plague a few years before, and it was just right outside the jurisdiction of the Virginia Company, and so the settlers ended up being squatters. They had no legal right to the land, and there was no recognized government because they never gained a charter from the Crown. Now, because they had to figure out some sort of government or some way to govern themselves, they came up with the Mayflower Compact. So, in 1620, they came up with this agreement. Now, this is not a constitution. This is not a hard and fast rule. This is just an agreement that we call a social contract. So, you're saying you agree to be governed by these rules or these laws. Now, the purpose of this was to legitimize the Pilgrim Settlement outside Virginia by, by creating a secular document that recognized James I as their sovereign, but also created a body for all the, the settlers with power so they could devise these laws and elect leaders. So it was kind of like uh, like a legislative body. Now, because Plymouth never possessed a charter, it would eventually merge with the Massachusetts Bay Colony, or, or MBC, as we've been uh, shortening it to. So, the agreement is going to provide for majority rule among the settlers. Now, this is going to exclude servants and seamen. And, it's also going to become an important seed for democracy. The way it usually would work is you would have all your adult male settlers, again, not servants and seamen, um, they're going to settle, settle, they're going to assemble to make these laws and to conduct open discussion town halls or town meetings. Now, despite a terrible first winter, where about a half of all the people you know, who were originally there, so you have, what, 102, so maybe 50 ended up living, um, no one left Plymouth Plantation. They just kind of felt like this is where they needed to go eventually there would be relations with the the natives in the area uh there would be a a native by the name of Squanto that's going to serve as a liaison between the pilgrims and the wampanoags and the wampanoags are the uh pokanokets and that's P O K A N O K E T S mm-hmm. sorry about my phone there mm-hmm. it's going a little crazy it needs to calm down progressive wants me to check my snapshot results but here we go anyway anyway the Poconuggets uh the or the Wampanoags they're who control the region so these Wampanoags are going to help the pilgrims by demonstrating corn cultivation they're going to show them where to fish and they're going to introduce or he's going to introduce them to um Massasoit M-A-S-S-A-S-O-I-T, and this is the leader of the tribe. Now, by the fall of 1621, 20 acres of the Native American corn are going to provide food for survival. So, this gets us to our first Thanksgiving. So, in the autumn of 1621, the pilgrims are going to adopt the natives' traditional custom of giving thanks at the time of harvest, believing their survival was God's will. This ritual has generally lasted three days, and it was, it's going to end up becoming an annual event. Now, there's going to be an alliance that's formed by the Pilgrims and the Wampanoags for mutual protection against other Native American tribes. So, there's going to be a peace between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoags that's going to last 41 years, and that's up until Massasoit's death in 1662. So, let's talk about the success of the Pilgrims. Sorry. Now, they're going to develop an economy of fur trading, fishing, and lumber. Their religion is going to remain paramount in the community because, I mean, that's the whole reason they moved, right? William Bradford is going to serve as the elected governor for several years, and to encourage farming, he's going to distribute land among the settlers. A a man by the name of Miles Standish... Is going to be a military leader who's going to be hired to protect the pilgrims. He's going to lead an expedition against the Massachusetts natives at the behest of Massasoit. Massasoit wants, you know, these other these other native tribes kind of put down. Cause remember that, you know, I told you these alliances are going to shift. Um, you've got natives moving into other territories. And part of that has to do with the the English settling in and pushing them out into other you know, into the settlements of other of other Native Americans. Now, despite the Puritan attacks from further north, Massasoit is going to honor his treaty with the Pilgrims until his death in 1662, and then after that, you know, fair game. Uh, in 1691, the small Plymouth Colony of around 7,000 people are going to merge with this large Massachusetts Bay Colony because remember, the Pilgrims didn't have their own charter. And Massachusetts Bay had its charter revoked, and the Crown sought to unify both colonies for administrative purposes. So let's talk about the Massachusetts Bay Colony itself. Now, it's going to be founded in 1629. The Puritans are going to come to America to escape uh, religious persecution. Charles I had dismissed Parliament in 1629, and he'd sanctioned the anti-Puritan persecution. Archbishop Laud, L-A-U-D, opposed any separation from the Church of England, and moderate Puritans had gathered support in Parliament for reforms, but the king is going to refuse to guarantee the power of Parliament or the basic rights for people because he believed in royal absolution, or royal absolutism. Basically, he thought he was the be-all, end-all of of everything. The Massachusetts Bay Colony... Was founded by non-separatist Puritans out of fear for their faith and for England's future. You have the Cambridge Agreement, and it was signed in England. It turned the corporate charter into a government that served as Massachusetts Bay Colony's constitution for several years. So now the Puritans were far away, you know, far enough from the royal authority and the Archbishop to actually, you know, kind of live their lives. Okay, in the 1630s, we get the Great Migration. By 1631, 2,000 colonists had arrived in Boston and had settled a number of towns around it. There was turmoil in England, resulted in around 15,000 more immigrants coming to New England. Now, there's going to be around 60,000 others that are going to be scattered throughout North America and the West Indies, but we're focusing more on the New England state or New England colonies at the moment. The Great Migration was also. the end of the Great Migration, I should say. It came at the the head of the English Civil War because this is what's actually going to end it. The Puritans are going to remain in England in order to help fight the Royalist uh, forces and they're going to be led by Oliver Cromwell who's going to take control of the government between 1642 and 1660. And uh, good old Charles that didn't want to deal with anybody, he's going to be beheaded in 1649. Just, you know. Funsies there. All right. John Winthrop, W-I-N-T-H-R-O-P. He was the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Uh, He believed in a covenant theology. He believed the Puritans had a covenant with God to lead a new religious experiment in the new world. He wrote that famous phrase, we shall build a city upon a hill, in what what was called a model of Christian charity as he was sailing to Massachusetts Bay. Oddly enough, his strong leadership was what helped the colony to succeed. Massachusetts eventually is going to become the largest and most influential colony in New England. Its economy was mainly comprised of fishing, shipbuilding, and fur trade, but it also had lumbering, some dairy farming, and a little bit of farming of wheat and corn. This is small farms, not, not plantations. The religion and the politics in the Massachusetts Bay Colony... The government was open to all free adult males, so that was about two-fifths of the population. But you also had to belong to the Puritan congregation. And The percentage of eligible office holders was more than in England, so this was like the first real taste of any kind of democracy. Now, if we looked at it today, we'd be like, no, not really. But when you didn't have anything like that before, it's, it's the steps you're taking in order to have a more free society. Now, eventually, the Puritan churches are going to grow collectively into the congregational church, which we'll talk about a little bit later. The Puritan men are going to gain the right to vote in 1631, but if you were non-religious or you were female, you still couldn't vote. Now, these town hall meetings are going to emerge. This is going to be the staple of democracy because your town governments are going to allow all male property holders and at times other residents to vote and publicly discuss issues. Now, votes were basically conducted by majority rule, so 51% wins, and you did it by a show of hands. The purpose of this government, of the Massachusetts Bay uh, Colony government, was to enforce God's law, that covenant uh, theology. So the provincial government under Governor Winthrop was not a democracy, but it was the closest you had at the time. Uh, Only Puritans, so the visible saints, could be freemen, and only freemen could vote. Winthrop actually did hate democracy, and he distrusted most non-Puritan common people, but again, this was about as close as you got. Well, anything tied to Europe, that is. Now, the Congregational Church was established, so your non-church members as well as believers were required to pay taxes, ...to the government-supported church. If you were a religious dissenter, you were punished. Uh, New England is eventually going to become the least tolerant... ...when it comes to religion. Now, this is going to be with exception... (coughs) Sorry. going to be with an exception of New England... ...or not New England, of Rhode Island. But that comes later. All right, church leadership... Now, it is con- it controlled the church membership by conducting public interrogations of people claiming to have experienced conversion. So if you said that you had experienced conversion and you were now a visible saint, you would more than likely, you know, you have to have some public um like they would get you in front of the congregation and start questioning Making sure that, you know, you really did have this conversion, even though this was supposed to be a, a personal matter, not a, um, let's go out and tell everybody. Alright, John Cotton, he was devoted to defending the government's duty to enforce religious rules, yet he advocated a civil government. For the most part, clergymen were not allowed to hold any kind of political office. Um, A congregation could hire and fire ministers, and they also set their salaries. In effect, a form of separation of church and state is beginning to exist here. The Puritans in England had learned their lesson when they suffered at the hands of the political Anglican clergy in England. In other words, their agenda was pushed on them, their religious agenda. Okay, so then we have the Cambridge Platform. This is going to come, up, come to effect in 1648. This is going to consist of four Puritan colonies, Massachusetts Bay Colony, the Plymouth Colony, Connecticut Colony, and New Haven Colony. And they're going to be organized as a co- uh, congregational form of church government. Now, the significance of, of this is that the congregational church is going to become more uniform throughout New England. So your laws or your legislation or however you want to put it. It's going to start to coincide in those four colonies. This is going to represent an increased regional identity throughout much of New England. So it's going to spread past those four colonies. In 1634, there's going to be a representative legislative assembly formed. And after 1642, the assembly will meet separately as a lower house and was the most influential organ of the government. Now, we're going to have religious dissenters, like most places do, in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. First off, we have Quakers who believed in the inner light and not necessarily in theology. They're going to flout the authority of the Puritan clergy and, obviously, were persecuted. Uh, there would actually be a few that were publicly executed, just to make their point known. Then you have Anne Hutchison. Anne believed in antinomianism. A N T I N O M I A N I S M. So she believed the elect, remember those are the people who were chosen by God, didn't need to obey man's law because they were predestined for salvation. The uh the example I used in class today was the fact that, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about speeding because that's man's law and not, you know, God's law. All right. She's also going to hold prayer meetings at her home to discuss John Cotton's sermons with other women. Now, this was a taboo for a non-clergy member to do so with the congregational church, especially as a woman. The clergy is going to accuse accuse her of heresy, and she's going to be brought to trial in 1638. She's going to claim direct revelation from God, which made this an even higher heresy because she's claiming to speak for God. Uh, she's going to be banished from the colony. She's going to be in, end up setting out for Rhode Island. Her trial may have been political since some who supported Anne politically opposed the present leadership of the colony. So it was like they were getting back at her and her followers. Um, all but just a couple, I believe, of her children are actually going to be killed once they, once they make it to Rhode Island. Rhode Island was a a place of the wilds at the time. <clears throat> All right, so Roger Williams. Now, he was an extreme separatist who challenged the legality of the Plymouth and the Massachusetts Bay Colony charters because of, because the land had belonged to Native Americans. It was not the king's land to grant. He's also going to claim that the Massachusetts Bay Colony took land without fair compensation. Imagine, the, imagine that. He subscribed to the liberty of conscience. So, Williams denied the authority of the civil government to regulate religious behavior. He also claimed that government could only punish civil crimes while the church alone had responsibility for religious discipline. He argued that no man should be forced to go to church, in effect, challenging the basis of the Massachusetts Bay government, who had a mandatory, you know, sorry, mandatory or compulsory church he used the wall of separation which is a metaphor for church and state separation you know thomas jefferson would later use this metaphor to establish uh, religion de- sorry disestablish religion <coughs> <coughs> sorry in virginia when he wrote his virginia statute of religious freedom which would later go into the the bill of rights under the first amendment okay the general court is going to banish Williams from, his, from the colony in October of 1635, and he's going to end up going in the winter of 1636 to Narragansett Bay, where he was sheltered by Native American friends. He purchased land from the Native Americans and founded the community of Providence, accepting all settlers regardless of their belief. So this is you know more over a society of equality. Alright, so the decline of Puritanism. So, the first generation of Puritans began losing their religious zeal as time went on. A large population influx dispersed the Puritan population onto outlying farms away from control of church and neighbors. So, it's like um, when the cat's away, the mouse will play kind of thing. After the wave of dissension in the 1630s and the 1640s, like Hutchinson and Williams, conversions decreased dramatically. Children of non-converted members could not be baptized. The Jeremiad, Jer, which is J-E-R-E-M-I-A-D, and that's taken from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, was used for, sorry, used by preachers to scold parishioners into being more committed to their faith. But these conversions continued to abate as second-generation Puritans had trouble getting their conversions authenticated by the church. And that prevented their children from being baptized. In 1662, we got the halfway covenant. And they sought to attract more members by giving partial membership to the unconverted. So those who had been baptized as children. Children of halfway members were allowed to be baptized. Eventually, the Puritan churches opened baptism to anyone, and this is going to be around 1700. The distribution between the elect, or the distinction between the elect and the other members of society are going to end up you know, subsiding. The, the strict religious purity was sacrificed for wider religious participation, and part and part, uh, women made up a large percentage of congregations, and then the Salem Witch Trials. Bless them. Six. Sorry. Yep. 1692. And this the Salem witch trials are what's really going to symbolize the decline of the Puritan clergy. Massachusetts is going to suffer political, religious, and military upheaval that's going to lead to widespread paranoia and unrest. Many Europeans and colonists in the 16th and 17th centuries believe the devil worked through witches in the real world. The first accusations began when young girls, after listening to voodoo tales from a black servant, began behaving oddly. The witch hunt resulted in a reign of terror after certain older women were accused of being witches. The young female accusers were from the poor western part of the community and the accused the more prosperous people in the eastern part. After the witch trials, 20 people were executed and oddly enough, a dog. Because, you know, they turned into a dog. What? Cotton Mather was one of the most prominent clergymen in Massachusetts and tacitly supported the witch trials, thus weakening the prestige of the clergy. Now, we ta- we also talked about the, the Salem witch trials a little bit, and that we believe that part of it may have had to do with um, laced flour or laced bread that caused people to see hallucinations. Or it could have just been they were trying these... Young, uh, these younger women were trying to get back at these older women, these more, you know, prosperous women. All right. Let's move on to Rhode Island. 1644. Now, it had complete freedom of religion, even for Jews, Catholics, and Quakers. There were no oaths required regarding one's religious beliefs. There was no compulsory attendance at worship, and there were no taxes to support a state church. Now, it's going to provide simple, manhood suffrage in the colony from the outset. It was opposed to any kind of special privilege. Rhode Island gathered immigrant dissenters from the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which led to the most individualistic and independent population. This is going to be along with North Carolina. Rhode Island received a charter from Parliament in 1644, so the squatters now had rights to land. Williams built a Baptist church, at Providence, and some claim it is the first Baptist church in America. Roger Williams. <clears throat> so Connecticut, and it was founded in 1636. So in May of 1636, a group of Boston Puritans, led by Reverend Thomas Hooker, moved into the Connecticut River Valley area and founded the town of Hartford. Thomas Hooker. Chaz is related to some Hookers. From Truman. No, really, though. Anyway, okay, so the three valley towns of Hartford, Windsor, and Weathersfield are going to establish the Connecticut Colony. Now, Hooker is going to believe that the Massachusetts Bay government was too arbitrary and oppressive, so his congregation is going to want more land than the Massachusetts Bay Colony was, you know, willing to grant. Like I said, oppressive things. There's also going to be a, a, a small colony that we discussed that was part of um, the congregational grouping, and that was, you know, the New Haven. Now, it was founded in 1638, and it was founded by Puritans that were wanting a stricter and closer church-government alliance in Massachusetts, you know, in contrast to, to Hooker's ideas. When the colony harbored two judges who condemned Charles I to death, Charles II sought revenge by granting a colonial charter to Connecticut, which ended up merging New Haven with the more Democratic settlers in the Connecticut Valley. So that's how New Haven ended up being part of Connecticut instead of being its own own colony. All right. The Fundamental Orders, these were drafted in 1639 by the new Connecticut River Colony. It was the first modern constitution in American history. Yay, constitution. It established a democracy controlled by wealthy citizens. Government should be based on the consent of the people. Social contract. This is also going to be patterned after the Massachusetts government and the foundation for Connecticut's colonial charter and later its state constitution. Maine is going to end up being absorbed by the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1677, and it remained part of Massachusetts for around 150 years until the Compromise of 1820. So it's got a little bit. New Hampshire, 1679. It had been absorbed in 1641 by the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Massachusetts Bay Colony has taken everything. It was primarily a fishing and trading economy, In 1679, Charles II arbitrarily separated New Hampshire from the Massachusetts Bay Colony after being annoyed by the Massachusetts Bay Colony's apparent greed and land acquisition. New Hampshire Hampshire then became a royal colony. Now, the Puritan relations with the natives, which didn't go, it was bad. Okay, so the Pequot War, P-E-Q-U-O-T, it went from 1636 to 1637. So the relations between Puritans and Pequots were strained in the years preceding the war in southern Connecticut and Rhode Island as Puritans wanted the Native Americans to move. Imagine that. Connecticut Town sent 90 men who opted to attack a smaller village of non-combatants. I say again, non-combatants where 400 Native men, women, and children were slain. By summer's end, most remaining Peacots were either captured, sold as slaves to the West Indies, not to be confused with the East Indies, or fled for shelter to their former enemies. They would rather go to their enemies than deal with the Puritans. Puritans used biblical passages to justify extermination of the Peacots. Rude. The New England Confederation was founded in 1643, Massachusetts Bay Colony, Plymouth, Connecticut, and New Haven, Despite the Puritan victory in the Peacock War, the New England colonies realized collective security was necessary for future defense against the Native Americans, the French, and the Dutch, because the Dutch started to move in. Now, this is the first milestone on the road to colonial unity. So, yay for that, but boo on the rest. Um, The English Civil War was in the 1640s and it's going to leave the colonies to fend for themselves. This is where we first get the idea of, hey, we can do this on our own. We don't actually need England. It was exclusively Puritan. Maine and Rhode Island were not allowed and it helped solve intercolonial problems like runaway servants and dealing with criminals. In 1675, we got King Philip's War. So the New England Confederation fought the Native American chieftain King Philip, also known as Medicom, who was the Wampanoag chief and the son of Massasoit. Oddly enough, we had all this time, 41 years of peace, and it just went down the drain. 52 of 90 Puritan towns were attacked, 13 were destroyed. Native Americans copied the Puritan attacks on noncombatants in the Peacock War. So, it's like full as once. Either way, though, the colonists were victorious and many Native Americans were sold into slavery into Bermuda. Medicom was executed and his head was cut off and displayed for 20 years. Displayed. Ew. Alright, the impact of the war. This is the bloodiest conflict ever fought on New England soil. Native Americans were effectively removed from the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. The success of the New England Confederation can be seen can, perhaps as the beginning of the American identity separate from Britain. Like I was saying, they're like, we can we can take care of ourselves. We can fend for ourselves. We don't actually need Britain. Because Britain did not help the colonists in King Philip's War or the Peacock War. <laughs> The New England success is going to catch the attention of the British crown that sought to cash in on the region's success. So Massachusetts charter was revoked a few years later. Okay, the British government is going to increasingly attempt to incorporate its North American colonies into a coherent, hierarchical, and imperial structure in order to pursue mercantilist economic aims. But conflicts with colonists and American Uh, American Natives, Native Americans, either way, are going to lead to an erratic enforcement of imperial policies, most of which, all of which, the colonists aren't going to like. So, now we have the Dominion of New England. Charles II is going to clamp down on the New England Confederation. Relative autonomy among the colonists disturbed Charles the Royalists and the Church of England, because Puritan hopes of purifying the Ang- uh, Anglican Church that wasn't good, so this is going to be destroyed. The Massachusetts Bay Colony charter Charter was revoked in eighteen 18- not eighteen sixteen eighty four sorry, I had a moment of dyslexia in response to its resisting royal authority. So, the Dominion of New England was established by James II in 1686. England sought to enforce its policy of mercantilism in which the colonists, colonies, existed solely for the benefit of the mother country. So, basically, they wanted wealth, prosperity, and self-sufficiency for the empire, not for the colonies, for the empire. In 1685, the Lords of Trade created the Dominion of New England to unite the colonies from Nova Scotia to the Delaware River under one government. Now, the purpose of the Dominion of, of New England was to enforce the navigation laws. And these were created to protect England's mercantilist system. They were also there to prohibit trade with non-English colonies and their allies. And they wanted to bolster colonial defense against Native Americans, the Dutch, and the French. In 1686, James II is going to appoint Sir Edmund Andros to lead, <clears throat> sorry, lead the Dominion of New England to oversee all of New England and later New York and East and West Jersey. So at one point in time, it was divided. Colonists despised his. Allegiance to the Anglican Church, Uh, town meetings were forbidden, all land titles were revoked, there were heavy restrictions placed on the courts, on the news, and on schools. It also taxed the people without the consent of their representatives, so taxation without representation. And it also enforced the unpopular navigation laws, and it suppressed smuggling. And smuggling the colonies became a common and even honorable way to uh, resist the crown. England's Glorious Revolution, which was supposed to be a bloodless, bloodless coup, but it, it wasn't. All right, this is going to trigger the First American Revolution. Catholic James II was dethroned in England and replaced by his daughter Mary and her Dutch-born Protestant husband, William III, also known as William of Orange. Parliament created a constitutional monarchy. So basically it, it forbid the king from levying taxes or ruling without its consent. News of James II's removal prompted Boston leaders to arrest Andros and ship him back to England. Unrest spread from New England to the Carolinas. The dominion of New England is basically going to collapse. Sorry, And the enforcement of the navigation laws was disrupted. Now, post-Glorious Revolution, New England. In 1691, Massachusetts was made a royal colony with a new charter and a royal governor. I got my phone again. The Plymouth Colony was merged with Massachusetts, and there's going to be tighter administration control by the crown over the colonies because, you know, they're a little bit concerned about what we're going to do. So the New England economy... So let's talk about the impact of geography and demography first. So the lack of good soil forged the Puritan characteristic of frugality and hard work. So subsistence farming farming was common because, so subsistence farming is where you are farming enough to take care of you and your family because there was very little of cash crop farming, in other words, the farming that you would sell. Uh, dairy farming was also very important in this area, mm-hmm. because there was a lack of uh, like food farming. Trade with was one of the cornerstones of the the region's economy, and they also had fishing and shipbuilding, so they could fish but they couldn't farm. Lumbering, shipping, and the fur trade also became important due to abundant forests and harbors. Excellent ports like Boston and Newport became important in developing the Atlantic trade. There was some. Uh, iron production that's going to develop in the 1640s, but it was going to be, it's going to end up being restricted by the Navigation Acts because it didn't want the competition from the colonies. Hmm. Due to its thriving economy, Boston was the largest city in the colonies by 1700 with 8,000 inhabitants. A lot bigger now. Anyway, Now, there was very little ethnic diversity. So your European immigrants were less attracted to the soil-depraved region than to the middle colonies, and there are going to be relatively few slaves living in New England, even though that Newport, Rhode Island, was a major slave-trading port. The lack of plantation agriculture like tobacco or cotton meant few indentured servants came to New England. So New England's population became the most, like, homogeneous among the three colonial regions meaning it was everybody was alike the early new england economy was inspired by the protestant work ethic that was fostered by the calvinists early new englanders worked tirelessly to create the city on a hill and economic success often was a result puritan Industriousness was partially due to the lack of fertile land, which nece- uh, necessitated the pursuit of alternative economic activities. Now, let's talk about society. So, the Puritan contribution to the American character democracy within the Congregational Church via town meetings and voting rights to church members that started back in 1631 is going to lead to democracy in, in political government. The body of liberties in 1641 may have been the world's first Bill of Rights. Town hall meetings where uh, freemen met together and each man voted was democracy in its purest form. This would be considered a direct democracy. New England villagers regularly met to elect officials, appoint schoolmasters, and attend to civic issues like things like road repair. Perfectionism. Puritans sought to create a perfect society based on God's laws the city on a hill. They argued against slavery on moral grounds. These ideas would lay the foundation for the later reform movement. So the abolition of slavery, the temperance and prohibition of alcohol, public education, prison reform, uh, mental hospital reform. This was all due to the New England society. And then the work ethic, the Protestant work ethic. So those who were faithful and worked hard and succeeded were seen favorably by God. Okay, education. Now, this was a major feature of the New England Society. Harvard College was founded in 1636 to train the clergy. This is the first college in the colonies, and it demonstrated the desire of Puritans to have a highly trained clergy. Now, by contrast, Virginians did not found a college until 1693, and this was the College of William and Mary. The Massachusetts School of Law which was 1642 and 1647, towns with more than 50 families were required to provide elementary education to enable children to read the Bible. New England became the most literate region of the colonies, and a majority of adults knew how to read and to write. Small villages and farms formed the basis of tightly knit society. It was necessary to provide security from bordering Native Americans and again the French and Dutch traders and settlers. After the 1640s, outsiders were generally not welcome in villages. Puritans lived an extremely strict and conservative lifestyle. So, the New England family. Now, New England's climate was less deadly. Then in the southern colonies, you had cooler weather and clean water meant less disease, less bacteria. Life expectancy was 70 years, at least 10 years more than in England. Uh, the Puritans tended to migrate to New England as families rather than individuals. In contrast, about 75% of immigrants to the Chesapeake in the 17th century came as unmarried, indentured servants. Families tended to have more children in the New England area, and strong family stability produced healthy adults and a strong social structure. Now that is going yep, that is the end of chapter 3 here. I will be posting your terms to know as well as tomorrow you will get your next half because this is the New England Colonies And we will get into the middle colonies in class tomorrow, most likely.